Hi, Patrick here. For the first time in the new year, happy 2013, if you're keeping count. And for this and the next two pods, we're going to be running a three-part series from the BBC, co-producer of this podcast and of The Big Show. The series is called Our Language in Your Hands. It's on endangered languages. And if you've heard some previous pods, you'll know that I'm not always that crazy on the way that we in the news media approach the subject. In fact, it's a bit of a pod meme. Don't get me wrong now. The rapidly accelerating rate at which languages are dying, it's one of the most important language-related stories out there. But it's just that we're kind of useless at telling that story. We tend to, I don't know, tread the same dull narrative path rather than seeking out other ways to dramatize what's happening. If I have to listen to one more story in which the reporter interviews the, quote, last living speaker of whatever the language is, and then tells me that after this person dies, then the language will too, I'm gonna, well, it'll be too late for the drama meme. The thing is this, that stereotyping the story in that way, it doesn't do anyone any favors, doesn't do the languages any favors. However, I do think that this BBC series passes the smell test. It largely avoids that whole cliched public radio take, and for a couple of good reasons. First, because it's written and reported not by a journalist like me, who might be more susceptible to lazy storytelling, but by a linguist. And second is, well, because he's a linguist, who's also an anthropologist who's done a ton of field work over the years, well, he knows his stuff. He, he's really intimate with his subject matter, passionate about it too. His call to arms, addressed to other linguists, is particularly powerful. Listen out for that at the end of today's report. So his name, this linguist's name, is Mark Turin. He teaches at Cambridge University, Yale too. And in the first part of this series, he's in the country where he did most of his academic research, Nepal. Here goes. I'm here dodging motorbikes on the streets of Kathmandu. It's a city I know very well, actually. I've been coming and going for 20 years. I was first a school teacher here, and since then I've worked as a linguist and anthropologist in remote parts of eastern Nepal. Nepal is home not only to temples and monkeys, but also incredible linguistic diversity. Well over 100 languages spoken in this country from four different, totally genetically distinct language families. And I spent many years of my life working on just one of those languages, a unique, endangered Tibeto-Burman language called Tangmi. I first got interested when I saw a map of Nepal's languages. It was a linguistic wall map with pins showing each one of Nepal's unique speech forms. Extinct, endangered, documented and undocumented. And at that moment I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to document and preserve and protect one of Nepal's indigenous languages. With uh, Kathmandu traffic being what it is, the best way of getting around town is on motorbike. Years ago in western Nepal I used to own a horse, but it turns out that horses are more expensive to maintain than motorbikes. They eat non-stop, so traded the horse back in the good old-fashioned westerns. It's surprising to think that I'm passing speakers of some of the world's most endangered languages. Whoa, that was a new one. There are two reasons that languages become extinct. The more traumatic but less frequent is when through natural disasters, wars, famine and migration, people die. 
and take their languages with them when they go. The other more common process is known as language shift, and refers to a speech community replacing one language, usually of low status, with another one, often of higher prestige. In these cases, the community lives on, but their language is lost in the transfer. The general need to protect languages from disappearing, which is all over the world, and Nepal, with its 93 languages, definitely a lot of them are endangered. They need protection. Kunda Dixit is editor of the Nepali Times. The need to preserve them is not just for Nepal's sake, but it's a world heritage. And I think if a language uh, disappears, vanishes, um, the world loses yet another language. And this is a trend that's happening globally. And I think it's up to us to preserve some of our languages. That's at one level. The other level, of course, is that children learn best in their mother tongue. And um, it would be um, fantastic if we could have a system where primary schools at least become the vehicles through which these languages are preserved. This idea of teaching children in their own home language is not as far-fetched as it may sound. The United Nations has been promoting awareness of the benefits of mother tongue and multilingual education for some time. It's now clear that children who begin their education in their mother tongue make a better start and continue to perform better than those for whom school entails learning an entirely new language. Miranda Weinberg is a graduate student in educational linguistics at the University of Pennsylvania, conducting fieldwork on this issue in Nepal. Multilingual education is based on a very simple premise, that is, that people learn best if they understand the language they're being taught in. So, for instance, if I speak some language at home, and I go to school and I'm being taught in another language, I might not understand what's going on. I wouldn't understand what I was supposed to be learning. I wouldn't feel comfortable, and this leads to, in Nepal and in other parts of the world, a lot of repetition of first and second grade. So you meet kids who have just been taking the same classes over and over because they don't understand the language. What are the obstacles to multilingual education? You need teachers who speak these different languages. In Nepal, that's a huge obstacle. But even more than that, there's a political and social resistance. That doesn't see these other languages as worthy of being in school is very doubtful that you could actually learn, say, math or science in some minority language. So one of the challenges for advocates of this kind of work is to say that yes, these languages are not inherently worse or less capable of communicating these ideas. They just haven't been given the opportunity before. We're tucked in behind the World Bank office in Nepal, and we're here at the modern Nihua English School. It's a multilingual school for primary level students. And we're going to walk up the stairs now and listen to a class in action. Namaste, namaskar. I've actually never been to a school in Nepal that is truly multilingual. So this is for me an extraordinary experience. Very exciting. Slightly nervous because I'm not sure I know any of the languages. We're in a classroom of about, I think, 35 kids. Beautiful school uniforms and lovely blue and white shirts. And there's a teacher who is teaching them in their own language. It's called Nepal Basa or the Nuari language. And they're learning maths. They're learning social studies, all in their own language. Oh. 
I actually understood a bit of that. Surprised myself. Sa means tasty. Sa wanago mito agyoina. This is the reality of modern Nepal. Children who are multilingual, who speak their own language at home and now even in school, Nepali the national language, and even have books in English. These are the future of uh, of Nepal. We're just here walking in through the gates of the Ministry of Education in Kathmandu. It's a funny place, beautiful columns, lovely lush garden and crumbling infrastructure. And we're going to meet Lavadeva Vasti, passionate about education, passionate about multilingualism. But I'm bringing a couple of questions to him from a few of the teachers we've met who are concerned the government is not doing enough to support their schools. As we're walking down the stairs here in the Ministry of Education, I'd like to ask you what is your title? I am joint secretary responsible for higher education and school management. Well, government language policy is very clear and it has been uh, seen as a clear departure from what used to be during my time. At that time it was one language, one culture, one nation. You know, that was a very declared state policy. Because of all the uh, factors that we uh, analyze at the moment, uh, Nepal's current policy is to promote multilingual education. Why is there such a long gap between the provision of policy, legislation and then implementation? Until we uh, prepare teachers to make it happen, uh, we cannot uh, give a, a big, you know, push to this. Is it the aim of the government of Nepal to have the instruction in the local language, so the medium of instruction being the mother tongue, or to have the mother tongue as a subject in the school? The Education Act clearly articulates that mother tongue should be used as the medium instruction at the early grades of their education. Nam otire mik chim chim mik chim chim allogo namoti imlo Bairagi Kaila is reciting a poem dedicated to his daughter. It's the first poem that he ever wrote in his mother tongue. He is Chancellor of the Nepal Academy, an institution that oversees the development of the languages, cultures and literatures in the nation. He's also an accomplished scholar, having recently produced a 600-page trilingual dictionary of his own ethnic language, Limbu. My work focuses on another of Nepal's little-known and increasingly endangered languages, Tangmi, a Tibeto-Burman language with around 30,000 speakers. I wanted to learn to speak the language, not just document the grammar. To do so, I chose to live with a Tangmi family, participating in and becoming part of their social world. In due course, they gave me a name, Nakaman, meaning newcomer, and with that, I was formally accepted into one of the seven male clans. Learning an unwritten language like Tangmi is a humbling experience. In many ways, I became a child again, unable to express myself with any nuance and precision and entirely dependent on others to help correct my mistakes. On a good day, you feel as if you're code-breaking, peeling away layers of a complex linguistic system in order to get at the heart of the grammatical structure that lies within. I was fortunate that members of the Tangmi community became interested in my project. Villagers would come for miles to teach me words. Younger sister's husband's younger brother. 
Crouching or sitting with all four limbs on the ground. A particular kind of very thin centipede which is known to reproduce in the ear and cause discomfort. Once the daughter of our house woke me up before dawn because a relative had arrived bearing words that he was convinced I couldn't yet know. He was right. They were all new to me. And he was so proud to teach me, an outsider, the term that is used to describe the colour of a leaf turning brown in the autumn, of verbs of motion that differentiate according to the angle that you're walking. I've finally completed my work on Tangmi. I've written a grammar and a dictionary of the language with a set of transcribed stories that I recorded in the field. Since it's just been published in two volumes, I'm back in Nepal to return to the villages where I lived and worked for so long to show them the proof that I made good on my promise to them, to document their language and put everything that I know about it in a book. I'm taking the book home. I'm Mark, Mark Turin. I'm Chandra. Chandra, nice to meet you. Good. Where are you from, Chandra? It's an early morning in Kathmandu. We've just packed up our bags and we're loading up the car. We're off to uh, Chokoti. It's a village in eastern Nepal, about 100 kilometers towards the Tibetan border. How's the road, Chandra? Ah, it's quite good. No problem. Four-wheel drive. I think we're going to need it. Okay, I'm glad we're in your hands. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much. Let's pack up now. So there we go, despite our best efforts, we're already stuck in traffic. So for those of you who think that uh, the Himalayas is a pristine mountain wilderness, I'm going to have to tell you that Kathmandu is a seething metropolis full of pollution and traffic jams and broken roads and monkeys. We're going to be in traffic for a while until we clear the Kathmandu Valley, crest over to the east and then make our way through rice paddies towards uh, Chokoti. One of the challenges but also exciting things about working with a community like the Thangmi is that they are not all in one location. We have this image that ethnic groups in the Himalayas would be very bounded in place and time. But the Tangmi are interesting, because for generations now, Tangmi have migrated to eastern India, to Darjeeling and to Assam, to work in the tea plantations as British India grew. They've also migrated to Tibet. So the Tangmi community is actually dispersed across the eastern Himalayas. We've reached the end of the motorable road, and we're not the only ones. There's a couple of sad-eyed buffaloes being led to slaughter just beside us. We're about to take a right turn off onto a dirt agricultural road and wind our way up to the village of Budipa, and that's where we're going to leave our car and our driver for the night, and we're going to ascend a steep climb up to Chokoti, the village that is our destination and the place that I'm returning the books. I first came to this village in 1999, in the early days of the Maoist insurgency, a very tense time in Nepal's political history. The headman of the village, Man Bahadur, with whom I'm going to stay tonight, was suspicious and concerned that I might be a troublemaker, affiliated to a political party. He refused to meet with me at first and made me sleep in the cowshed until he was convinced of my motives. It's funny to reflect on that so many years later, as we've become fast and lasting friends. As I'm panting up this hill, I'm remembering uh, a very formative moment when I realised the difference between oral traditions and written traditions. I was in this village, and I decided to go with the women of the house to collect fodder for the animals and also firewood for the house. 
And everywhere we went, the women were pointing out different local plants and trees and shrubs and giving me the local names. Every time they gave me a word, I stopped, pulled out my pencil and my paper from my backpack, and I noted the name down, getting the Nepali, making a note to look it up in a botanical dictionary later. And one of the women turned to me and said, Brother, why do you have to constantly write things down? Can't you just remember these words? And I said, Sister, no, I cannot. I, I can't remember these words. I have to write them down. And that point had occurred to me. These women live in an entirely oral world. They speak many languages. They listen to many languages. And they can recall people, places, locations, even phone numbers now, without the need for writing. For us, our pen and paper, it's our greatest tool. It's also a crutch. Just walking down the final steps to Man Bahadur Tami's house. I call Man Bahadur older brother. It sounds maybe to a Western ear slightly facetious or overly intimate, but it's a totally normal way of speaking to people. In fact, if you don't call them older brother, you don't really know what to call them. Kinship terms and kinship relationships are everything here. And once you establish that one person is your older brother, everything else flows from that. So we're going to keep on going down the steps to our house. Manbuhara has written a beautiful poem saying that I've not come for many years and they've wondered where I've been. And the whole village of Chokoti is wondering about which country I'm living in now. He sees me in his dreams and he wonders if I've forgotten him because he has not forgotten me. Everything in a Tami village is handmade and homemade. And I'm now sitting right next to one of the most important pieces of a domestic toolkit, and that is the quern or hand mill. It's made out of heavy rock with a wooden handle on one side. I'm going to try and turn it, it's so heavy. Here we go. It's used to grind any kind of hard grain, typically millet and buckwheat and also corn. And when I asked the family in this household whether there was a local word for it, a tangmi word for this hand quern, they said, of course, it's a yante. The under part is the mama yante. And the upper part is the papayante. That was a Tangmi song sung by Manbahadur Tami, talking about eating wild forest products and working in other people's houses, not having any fields, no wet fields and no dry fields. This is the life of a poor Tangmi man. Nyakaring 
Pibuli mani rang mani Well, the moment has come. I'm sitting with Man Bahadur and his daughter, Kanji, and I'm about to show them my two-volume Tangmi Dictionary and Grammar. I'm not sure what I was expecting, to be honest, but my work may have more symbolic than practical value in this village. It's not really a book to be read, after all, more a record of what could be lost. And I've also documented aspects of Tangmi culture, because culture is reflected in language. I've produced, on page 922 of my book, a series of kinship diagrams. The important thing that we have to realize about the Tangmi kinship system is that it's not just a whole lot of distinct words, but actually those words indicate social relationships. By that I mean that the relationship between a man and his father's younger brother is a specific and very intimate relationship. Should the father die, the father's younger brother is the guardian and responsible for that boy. It's a very different relationship again to that between a man and his mother's brother, which is a very intimate, jokey relationship, almost like a, an older brother. Uh, often the uncle, that uncle would take that, that boy drinking and expose him to the ways of the world. So all of these distinct terms indicate specific social relationships, and that has not been eroded in this society. The Tangmi shaman has come. Shamans preside over weddings and funerals and also have a deep understanding of traditional herbal medicine. The Tangmi shaman has now gone into trance. The ancestral spirits have just come into his body and he's become possessed by the deities speaking in tongues, in a ritual language. Tangmi remains an endangered language. In all likelihood, it'll disappear from the earth in the next 50 years, at least as a spoken vernacular. My own adopted Tangmi family in Nepal were involved in a dramatic transition in their language use while I lived with them. Grandfather was effectively monolingual in Tangmi, speaking only very rudimentary Nepali, while his grandchildren were monolingual Nepali speakers with only a passive understanding of the language of their ancestors. That's a decisive language shift in just two generations. It takes years for a language to evolve, and it can disappear in just a flash with the death of the last speaker. That's why this work is so urgent. But there is scepticism from some quarters about the value of preserving and protecting such vanishing voices. To what end are endangered languages being documented? Is this really something that speakers want or need? And who are the people who work to promote these minority speech forms? A lot of times these efforts to, you know, invigorate languages and things like that come sort of from the top, if not from external sources, at least, you know, the so-called elite from those communities who themselves send their kids to, uh, you know, private schools where you learn Nepali or better yet English. Srochis Karki is pursuing a PhD in international development at the University of Oxford. What we need to ask is, uh, what, what, what is the interest among people to actually save that language in the first place? I'm not saying that language isn't important, but I think we do have to place it in a context where people are struggling with a lot of other things. And if we want to preserve language, we have to be able to also provide these other things so that uh, these conversations become more meaningful. 
Until recently, all government communications and official media were in the national language, Nepali. Krishna Bhattachan is an anthropologist and prominent activist for the rights of indigenous people. When they tune in radio, it's all in Nepali or in English or in other languages, not in their own mother tongue. What would you like to see in the constitution in terms of the provision for language? For many uh, endangered languages or uh, those languages which are at the verge of extinction, right, or which are highly marginalized, uh, they definitely need some kinds of affirmative action. Otherwise, uh, they cannot flourish. For those languages which are spoken by, say, less than 100,000 people, for example, some kind of a state patronage is necessary. C.K. Lal is a journalist who comes from Nepal's Mithili-speaking community. I'll give you just one example. Suppose someone has to go to court, he would need to hire someone who can write petition on his behalf in Nepali. Now in the court he will be questioned in Nepali, which he cannot answer. Then he would need a pleader or a lawyer who would translate his answers. But that pleader and the judge usually from similar community background, with similar attitude. So uh, these are uh, all intertwined. You cannot separate. You can say, just put in the constitution that, okay, every language gets rights, but everything else remains the same. Then it becomes pointless. It doesn't work. While some are passionate about being educated in their own language, others are more doubtful and fear that mother tongue instruction may marginalize them further and they'd rather have better access to Nepali and English. Miranda Weinberg again. They've been targets of many initiatives that they feel have not benefited them or just sort of being ignored by the government for a long time. And now when someone comes in saying, we have this new idea, we'll teach you your own language, it sounds terrible. It sounds like a plot. I've travelled and worked in India, and I was always struck um, in parts of northern India that you know well as well, Darjeeling and Sikkim, that the medium of instruction in schools in Sikkim is English, which is essentially the mother tongue of nobody, a great equaliser. Is there any movement in Nepal to propose that English should become the medium of instruction? I don't think that's a position we're going to see from the government anytime soon, but actually on the ground... That seems to be the position that a lot of people are taking. English schooling is incredibly popular. was driven by the aspiration to go and study and work abroad. And um, parents and the students themselves feel like they have a comparative advantage if they have English, good English. The other factor, I think, is uh, migrant workers. And, you know, 18% of Nepal's population is living abroad at any time. And a lot of migrant workers, let's say in Doha or in Kuala Lumpur, they write home to their wives saying, look, I'm, I'm earning $100, $200 less per month than my Filipino counterpart just because I don't speak English. So then uh, the wives back home then send their kids to English schools um, so that they, again, have an advantage when they grow up. One of the problems is generational. I'm having dinner with anthropologist Mukta Singh Lama and his multilingual family. His native language is Tamang, but increasingly, as in many families in Kathmandu, he speaks Nepali and even English with his children. Until I was like 10 years old, it was all Tamang in my home. Uh, what language do you speak with your wife? It's Tamang. But uh, it's becoming harder and harder to talk in Tamang to the younger ones. They can understand when I speak now, they, uh, often they started, you know, kind of uh, responding in Nepali. 
So if you ask simple questions about have you eaten, who's come in, where did you put that box, that can be in Tamang. Yeah. But as soon as you have a question about have you done your homework or please turn off the computer, they respond in Nepali. So it becomes like in a cycle. While many of Nepal's indigenous languages remain at risk, the very fact that they now can be heard gives people greater confidence. Journalist Prashant Jha's native language is Mithili. When we used to speak these languages in public places, even 10-15 years ago, when, when you know Dad used to take us out for a meal or we used to go out uh, shopping in a market, if we spoke in Hindi or if we spoke in Mithili, we were immediately hushed up. And then later we were told that, you know, the sign of being a Nepali is speaking in Nepali. But with the opening of democratic space, I think there is more willingness to use one's own language, not only at home, but also in the public realm, and, and create communities around that. There are now more trained linguists than there are languages spoken on earth. Working in partnership with communities of speakers, we are in the position of being able to collect and protect these vanishing voices before they disappear without record. Most likely, much of that loss will happen in my lifetime. These digital documents, snapshots of human creativity, can then be used by future generations to explore and even revive the defining characteristic of our species, the innate power of language. A species of large red leech which lives on trees. The side of the body, up to the armpit, but no further. Yaku. To walk on all four limbs like an animal. Gongkorsisa. A rain shield made out of tightly woven bamboo. Jing. So that's part one of Mark Turin's series. The producer was Mark Rickards. In the next part, which will be in the next part, Mark Turin is in South Africa, which is trying to figure out a language policy of its own. It has 11 official languages, but some of those languages are kind of more official than others. And then, of course, there's all the unofficial languages. I'll post links to Mark Turin's own website as well as to the BBC series. They'll be at theworld.org slash language. The pod is also on Facebook. There's a World in Words page. And I'm on Twitter. My handle is Patrick Cox, P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. See you next time.